everybody, and welcome to AZMCast. This season, we are trying something brand new for your listening pleasure. It's a unique approach to your education that is case-based, evidence-based, and most importantly, competitive. The panelists you know and love will go head-to-head as they navigate a case from the ring down to the workup to the dispo. Panelists will be awarded points for their quick wit, prioritization of tasks, and their clinical application of evidence-based medicine. However, they will lose points for weak arguments that rely on experience-based medicine and the use of banned, unhelpful jargon like gestalt or high index of suspicion or just because I feel like it. The panelists with the most points at the end of each episode will have free reign during the art of EM to rant about whatever aspect of EM is near and dear to their hearts at that given moment. We encourage you, the listener, to pause the podcast at each segment and consider your own approach before going on with the discussion. And our hope is that you will develop a prioritized, evidence-based approach to emergency medicine that will carry you into your next shift. And now, on today's episode, we present for your edutainment, The Ringdown. During the ringdown, points will be awarded for an appropriately focused history and physical with prioritized questions and evidence-based medicine backing. Points will be deducted for weak arguments or missing important elements. A 19-year-old male is coming in by EMS with a chief complaint of chest pain. But before we get started with a case, let's introduce our panel and give you, the listener, a chance to put yourself in their shoes and consider how you would prepare for this case. So first, Dr. Brian Drummond is a clinical associate professor of emergency medicine here at the University of Arizona. Say hi, Brian. Hi. Dr. Allie Min Simpkins is an associate professor of emergency medicine and assistant dean for faculty development here at the University of Arizona. Hi, Allie. Hi, Aaron. Hi, everybody. And Dr. Chris Williams is a clinical associate professor of emergency medicine at the University of Arizona and the reason that I am able to work less night shifts. Thank you, Chris. I sacrifice for you, Aaron. Okay, so the case again is a 19-year-old male coming in by EMS with a chief complaint of chest pain. His temperature is 36.6, his heart rate is 128, his blood pressure is 140 over 90, his respiratory rate is 32, and he's satting 95% on room air. For you, the listener, we encourage you to pause here for a second, think about what you would do, and we'll move on. Allie, what is going through your mind when you hear this page out? You're headed to the room, you've got high-risk differential diagnoses going on in your head. What are your top considerations? I think first, um, trying to control my bias of um, a young person presenting with chest pain, I think is probably the first thing, honestly, that I'm trying to do. Um, then secondly, I think you know chest pain is one of the most common presentations to the emergency department. And so this is a differential that you should just know cold. So we teach in the emergency department to think about the worst things first. And so in my mind, the big and bad things for chest pain are going to be acute coronary syndrome, aortic dissection, PE, tension pneumo, and Borhovs. Um, we know that when patients come into the ED and they complain about chest pain, they're getting an EKG before they're even done saying their name and putting, getting registered into the computer. And so there have been a couple studies that have been done. I think the most recent one was in 2009 talking about um, young people, young meaning under the age of 40. Um, and their risk of acute coronary syndrome specifically. 
Um, and they've, the literature has shown that if um, a patient is under the age of 40, they are not cocaine users. Um, and they have no known personal cardiac history or risk factors, and they have a normal EKG, their risk of having acute coronary syndrome um, or an adverse event related to that is almost is less than 1%. Um, and so still on my mind for this 19-year-old, since we don't really know anything about him, but um, just thinking about um, probabilities of things. And then I think after worst first, you're thinking common stuff, which you will deal with eventually when they get here, like reflux and musculoskeletal pain and all these other sort of less life and limb threatening issues. But Brian, this patient's coming to the emergency department by ambulance. It has to be something dangerous, right? Uh, probably not. I mean, I, a 19 year old coming by ambulance who's a man, I mean, he probably left his mom at home and his blanket, maybe in college. Um, but I'm not really too worried about him. Uh, I would probably be seeing other patients and let a lot of things happen before I even walked into his room. I'm being quite honest here. I'm, I'm not impressed with this scenario. I'd probably bring discharge papers to the door and, uh, you know, just eyeball them and say, no, you don't have COVID go home. <laughs> well, that answers my other question, which is how are you getting prepared for this? You've got this patient coming in. Anything that looks off on him as far as his vital signs uh, or anything that you want to start getting prepared in the back of your head, considering all the things Allie's just mentioned? Yeah, I mean, Allie gave a good list, but there's so much you, you, know, you think about, and I think we think about it so fast, and we, we run through things in our head because we have to... Uh, stay broad, right? This is a 19-year-old who has chest pain. There's lots of things, uh, you know, from the chest to the back to the belly. You know, there's lots that could be going through your head. The only real vital sign that I am too worried about in here would be his heart rate. Um, that stands out to me more than anything. And in terms of getting prepared, I'd, I'd probably eat a sandwich first and um, answer some emails. And then I'd go see him, and when I want to see him, I'd probably recheck the heart rate and get an EKG. Those would be the two things that are going to tell me more than anything and direct me where I'm going to go uh, before I start a history on him and, and start talking to the kid. Chris, do you have anything to add right now? Nope, not a thing. Well, then let me ask you. Just kidding. No, I got <laughs> of course I do. No, for, for me, um, you know, I, I start with the exact same bias that, that Brian admitted to and Allie, Allie addressed is, you know, this is a young person with chest pain and 95% or more of the chest painters that I see that are young, I end up discharging very quickly and get like a quick cursor EKG. And, and by the way, when we say a screening EKG, um, never just be satisfied with saying a screening EKG. I know this is already sounding like a rant. But um, you, you have a pretest probability of how much abnormality you're willing to accept on an EKG based on the patient. So this is a 19-year-old who's showing up with chest pain. Unless it's a STEMI or some like very clearly like Brugada-ish kind of EKG, I'm, I'm, it's going to be okay. And I'm probably going to say, yeah, that's fine. Inversions in lead three, flattening in lead three, whatever. I'm just going to sign off on it and they're fine. But what is not normal about this are the vital signs. And I'm not just talking about the tachycardia because we see lots of kids showing up that are a little bit tachycardic. They have some anxiety, maybe even to the point of a respiratory rate that's a, little, that's a bit elevated, not 32. And unless the, we don't trust our triage technicians or nurses to take adequate 
pulse ox, like they stick it on and within the first two seconds, they see a number and they write it down. That's not what they do. They leave it on, especially if they're getting an abnormal number, they wait and they wait and they wait until they get a good number. So the fact that I'm getting a triage sat of 95% means that's like the best that they could get after like a minute. And so that's abnormal to me. I'll be honest, I'm walking into this room and I'm thinking this kid's throwing a curveball at me just based on the O2 sat and the respiratory rate, not so much the heart rate. How would your approach to this patient change if the patient were hypoxic in addition to these vital signs? You mean more than 95%? Because that's, I mean, that's, to me, that's not hypoxic, like I'm going to throw O's on them, but it's enough to make me think there's something affecting their physiology. Um, but more hypoxic than 95, like going sub 90%, obviously IVO2 monitor, and I'm starting to expand my differential quite a bit. You asked, uh, you know, what kind of like follow-up questions I might ask. I don't think I've gotten, I don't think I've gotten there yet. Oh, you haven't? No. I'm reading this. I'm sorry. I'm reading your, I'm reading your, I'm reading You're getting ahead of me already. Overachiever. Boo. Boo. (laughs) Taking points away for getting ahead of me. <laughs> what would Ali, what would change in your perspective if this patient were hypotensive instead of hypertensive? Well then, I mean, now and then we're talking about shock, right? And that expands your differential. So um all the things that cause shock, septic shock, hemorrhagic shock, but we don't really know any of the story other than he has chest pain. And so I think um you're getting um I think I'm getting a lot more worried about making sure I have um all the equipment in the room that I need, including airway stuff, plus making sure the nurses have fluids ready to hang and getting started on him. But I think, you know, that certainly, as Chris said, your bias goes away pretty quickly when you have really abnormal vital signs. All right. So for all of you who have been listening this whole time, both of you, we (laughs) just spent about five minutes discussing the thing that you should be running through your head in the five seconds that you're going to a patient's room. If you're going to a page out, you're running through this stuff in your own mind. Your differential does not start after you've taken your history and physical in emergency medicine. Your differential starts at your chief complaint and you start to whittle it down. So it's time to start whittling. Your patient arrives sitting bolt upright on the stretcher, appears anxious, and really is breathing at those 32 times a minute. So Brian, what are any immediate interventions, if any, that you would do for this patient when they arrive? I think the first thing would be an EKG, and um, and I would repeat their vital signs. I know Chris was worried about vital signs, but I just see so many vital signs in ring down that are completely opposite of how the patient arrives. So I take all of them with a grain of salt, um, and I'd be putting them on a pulse ox, which would give me the heart rate and the um, oxygen set. At the same time, I'm doing an EKG. So to me, it's always interesting. They put them on the monitor first, and I'd rather have them put the EKG on in a pulse ox because I'll get the same information uh, faster. Um, and then, you know, rechecking the blood, uh, the blood pressure. And so you're getting a full set of vitals. But that would be the first intervention. Um, that I would do, uh, regardless of whether he's talking to me or not talking to me. But I think the eyeball test applies to this patient. So it changes my differential when he's, you know, anxious and sitting upright, that's a different appearance of someone laying back. So I would be thinking more respiratory and how I would assess respiratory status in uh, this kid versus uh, is it just a pericarditis and he's leaning forward and that's his bolt upright. 
Um, so that would be the first things uh, that I would do uh, if I had to get interventions Extra before talking to him. Extra points for Brian for doing the things in the fastest order that he can get them and extra points for acknowledging that I have not seen a 19-year-old sit upright with good posture unless they're really, really sick. So. <laughs> Allie, EMS is here. Uh, before they decide to go bolt, what questions do you have for EMS uh, specifically before we ask Chris to interview the patient? Um, I think I'd want to know what kind of what scene they arrived to, you know, who, who placed the call? Um, what was the scene like? Was there, you know, um, again, introducing bias, but you know, drug paraphernalia or stuff around the house. Is this like, you know, um, a seemingly normal family or, you know, kid who's just mind his own business and is calling EMS. I think just that, that sense of, of their, the scene call and, and their transport and, you know, what they've been concerned about. Right. While Allie is talking with EMS, uh, Chris, you're first up at the bed and you're going to be talking to this anxious, slightly diaphoretic 19 year old. Um, if I'm your patient, what questions do you have for me? Since I don't really feel like talking to you too much. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I have a, a written chief complaint of chest pain, but I actually want to hear what the patient's primary concern is because there's two problems going on, pain and, and dyspnea. So my question is going to be, what, what's bothering you the most? What made you want to call an ambulance? I can't, I can't breathe because my chest hurts. Okay, so you're having both pain and, and a hard time breathing. Yeah. Um, when did this start? Did it start all of a sudden or does has it been creeping up on you? I was watching YouTube and... Suddenly, it hit me. Sounds like it started pretty suddenly then. Yeah. Has anything like this ever happened before? Never. Uh, do you have any medical problems? No. Are you allergic to anything? No. Do you take any medicines on a regular basis? No. So I would ask about some social history, and primarily I, I want to know if he uses drugs. So I usually, I usually kind of actually mingle that in with my other questions about, like, medical problems. So I'll ask about, you know, medical history, you take any medications, they say no. Do you take, use any drugs? They say no. How about stuff like marijuana? Cause I throw that out there as a separate drug. Cause some people do. And, uh, they'll, they may say yes or no. And, uh, and, and then I always ask allergies after the medic, after the drugs. Cause it sounds like it's just my list of questions and I don't feel like I'm accusing them of anything. That's just what I, what I usually do. So I'll, I'll have asked about substances at this point. And specifically, I want to know, in this particular instance, two things. Was he hitting the bong really hard? So was he, you know, and maybe caused like a pneumothorax by just this insane and neg neg negative inspiratory force. And I want to know about cocaine on meth, something some pathomimetic. Uh, I smoke weed sometimes uh, and definitely today. Um, was this, uh, did this pain kind of start suddenly after hitting the bong kind of hard? Yeah, not too hard, but pretty hard. I go hard. Okay. Well, that's what she said. Point, points for that's what she said. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, yeah, I mean, at this point, um, those are the primary questions I'm going to be asking. Um, uh, and like Brian has already indicated, this isn't, you know, I'm not doing this in serial. I'm doing this in parallel. So, you know, we're already getting an EKG. If he, if he really is this dysnic, I'm going to see what oxygen does for him. Um, and I, I think actually I want to get a blood sugar on him too, just because this, some people present their first time DKA um, with a similar picture. 
Excellent. Great expanded differential. All right. Um, so Chris, in addition to these things you're doing in serial, what is your physical exam looking like? Uh, what things are you focused in on? Are you doing head to toe, starting at looking through his scalp and working your way to his toenails to look for paronychia? Or are you doing something focused? No, the first thing I'm going to do is listen to his lungs. Um, yeah, first thing I'm going to do is listen to his lung fields. And so primarily, I just want to hear, do they sound tight? Am I hearing any insane adventitious sounds or any significant asymmetry, like lack of breath sounds on one side or the other? All right, so I'm going to read through exactly what you find on this patient. So this is a 19-year-old male who has 30 minutes of right-sided sharp chest pain that started while watching TV. Uh, he now complains of moderate sharp pain that's worse with trying to take a deep breath. He denies any past medical history. He admits to smoking cigarettes and using marijuana and was uh, using a bong at the time that he had the onset of chest pain. He takes no medications, he has no allergies, and the review of systems are negative because if it was important, it would have been an HBI. His vital signs when you get to him in the ED is that he's 36.6, heart rate of 128, 140 over 90, respiratory rate of 32, satting 95% on room air. He is a tall, skinny male who is uncomfortable with uh, mild to moderate respiratory distress. He's tachycardic. He has no murmurs, two plus distal pulses. His breath sounds are equal bilaterally, and he is tachypnic, but without strider or wheeze or crackles. His abdominal exam is soft, non-tender, and non-distended. He's ANO times three with a non-focal exam, and he is quite anxious. So having looked at these things right here, Brian, uh, has anything uh, kind of clued in or been knocked off of your differential? I think the big things I would take away from with the physical exam was the wheezing, a sudden onset of shortness of breath or chest pain is, can be associated with an asthma or reactive airway disease. So a non-wheezing patient you know, with that respiratory rate, that kind of takes it uh, off for me. Um, in terms of, you know, we've looked at his chest. I think trauma goes out the window with his HPI and saying everything that was going on because chest pain in young men <clears throat> a lot of times can be trauma and they don't always present with, oh, I got hit or kicked or stabbed or in a fight or did something stupid because I'm 19. Um, <clears throat> the big things that I'm thinking about at this point, I would still be a dysrhythmia of some kind versus like a pneumothorax or some you know, vascular emergency, you're kind of hitting at something. So those would be the three that I would be worried about. Um, a sudden onset doesn't make sense for a PE sitting there and all of a sudden he throws a PE with no other symptoms ever in the history of his life uh, in a young male with minimum risk factors and the vitals just don't, you know, it doesn't kind of add up uh, for that. So, uh, and like Ali, you know, alluded to ACS is pretty low in a patient with this presentation as well. But I'm really looking for EKG would be my next thing, um, as I'd asked for earlier and never received. And understanding we had to do a history and physical, but that's how these things go. And then my next uh, option would be based on that. But that's what I'm looking for. I would say dysrhythmia, uh, pneumothorax, and then a vascular emergency would be kind of the three things that I have in my, uh, let's make sure it's all these, and then we'll go from there. So we've been trying to get the EKG. However, the doctor hasn't put an order in the computer yet, and so we can't do one. So a couple points off for not putting the order in the computer, Brian. Um, I gave Brian, a verbal order. Those work too, don't they? 
Brian, have you ever seen a dysrhythmia present with chest pain? I know we're not trying to ask you to do evidence or experience-based medicine, but I find that dysrhythmia and chest pain don't really seem to go hand in hand for me. What makes you think of dysrhythmia when you think of chest pain? Uh, well, it's it's in my differential partly because I've had um, <clears throat> I had a brugat my one of my only brugata cases presented with chest pain did not present with palpitation syncope or shortness of breath um, and some people they can't describe that symptom of pain per se right so they 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 don't know what a palpitation is they don't want that weird sensation in their chest of moving so they just describe it as chest pain because it's very easy to say and associate with so. I use that as an opening uh, for dysrhythmias because they can't explain how they're uh, feeling. Sometimes you'll just feel anxious, but that's, that's how I use it. So it, to me, it's an open, you know, just as we say, chest pain or pressure or a weird sensation or a flip flopping. There's lots of ways that people will describe uh, dysrhythmias. So to be honest of all the things that I would be worried about, the number one killer in this person would be a dysrhythmia. So until that is taken off the table, uh, that would be my number one concern because there's only like a couple things that kill you in one minute. Dysrhythmia is an anaphylaxis. Everything else you have time. Typically, you take off points for experience-based, but I opened the door. You answered it. Excellent job. All right. Can I add something? Please do. I think that's a good point. I think, you know, my differential for a young person with chest pain, dysrhythmia is really high up there. Um, but I, um, originally was thinking of this case in a, in a pure like chest pain sort of thing. And so, but I think Brian, that's a great point that people don't know how to necessarily verbalize the symptoms, the feelings, the sensations that they're having, and that uh, people may actually say it's pain when it, when it may be what we call palpitations or something like that. So I think that's a great point. The other thing I wanted to add that would really increase my concern for this patient is diaphoresis. Unless you're like literally coming in from outdoors in in this heat um, or you've just smoked a ton of meth or something like that, you really shouldn't be sitting in the on the bed sweating like that. And so um, anytime you see that, I that really should make you much more, I'm not going to say the buzzwords, but you should be very worried about badness. Very nice job skirting around those. All right, Allie, points to you for bringing up the sweaty patient should make you sweaty. And since you said, uh, since you brought up that Brian made such a good point, I'm going to give the points to Brian uh, for making such a good point. Can I, can I bring up a point that I think? Is it Brian or Allie's points? Because I'll give the points to them. No, I, I, I would disagree a little bit, and that's that if, if the patient looks like they're actively having chest pain or they're still complaining of chest pain in a young person with no risk factors to explain like this via ACS, if you look at them and their rhythm is totally normal and they're not having any arrhythmia, it's, it's not the arrhythmia that caused their prior chest pain. So in this person, if, if he's, even though we don't have an EKG, as long as he's on the monitor, if we can look at the monitor and the monitor's got a normal sinus rhythm and he's still having the chest pain, it's probably not enough, an arrhythmia. Excellent point. Uh, Brian brought up that this is a otherwise healthy male who had sudden onset of chest pain at rest. Doesn't make sense to be a PE. If this was a 19-year-old female, would you think differently about this patient? Um, maybe a little bit more. I mean, we know estrogen increases the, the risk a bit, but I would ask if they're on um, exogenous um, estrogens, um, birth control, for example, and, and, and ask specific or uh, <clears throat> separate from medications. A lot of women will just kind of forget that. And so you'll ask about, are you on any medications? They'll say, no. Do you take birth control? Yes. 
So you may, if, it's, if it's something that's actually really important, you need to ask specifically about it. Very good point. All right. So we have the patient. They've hooked up. We've got two large bore IVs. We've got them on a cardiorespiratory monitor that shows a narrow complex tachycardia that appears to be sinus. It's confirmed to be sinus tach without any ST changes, T wave inversions, or uh, prolonged intervals. And your finger stick uh, blood sugar is 121. So now that you've got this patient hooked up, any predictions for what may be going on with this young man? I think um, substance use is still on my list. Um, I think pneumothorax is also on my list. All the other stuff is sort of lower now as far as, again, dysrhythmia, acute coronary syndrome. He doesn't have a Borhoff's history. PE, certainly by the vital signs, it would be concerning, but without a history to really corroborate that and risk factors, I think that's still lower down. For me, um, after asking those questions and, and getting that the just a quick look at the monitor um, up to this point. I would have to say that uh, maybe a small pneumo because he does have normal equal breath sounds bilaterally. He could still have a pneumothorax that has normal, that's transferring normal breath sounds, substance use. Does this kid bear any resemblance to Abraham Lincoln? Maybe get blood pressures on both arms. Uh, he's a tall, skinny kid. I think the literature has shown that uh, blood pressures in both arms actually really isn't a good predictor because the typical population, I think it's 25 to 40% of people have abnormal blood pressures in both arms. So using that as a determinant for the Abraham Lincoln syndrome probably is not the ideal one. Uh, Chris would probably just scan him because I think that's a better choice. And Chris was going to do that anyway. He's just trying to <laughs> appease you, Aaron. I'm just trying to help him out. And, you know, you got to help a brother out over there. Brian Drummond with the lit bomb and the lead with 13 points. Chris Williams has 11 and Allie Min with 8 as we head into the workup. During the workup, points will be awarded for prioritization of interventions backed by evidence-based medicine. Points will be deducted for poorly defensible workups or treatments. Time to start intervening on this gentleman. So uh, what is your most important next intervention, Allie? What are you going to go for first? I believe Dr. Williams had ordered an IV O2 monitor. And so when he's got the IV, when uh, the nurses are placing the IV, we want to get all the blood tests sent. And then I want an x-ray immediately. We'll get you you your chest x-ray. We've just ordered every blood test that's available. All the tests. Some of them, including urine, plasma, Why? metanephrine. Why are we ordering tests? That's, that's my question. Ridiculous. Yeah, I'm not sure I'm, I'm there yet. No, totally wrong. Why are we ordering tests? <laughs> this is the nicety of AZMCAS that has just faded away with just the addition of points that don't really mean anything. I love it. So no blood test. You guys don't want any blood. I don't, I'm being facetious, obviously, with all blood tests. But I think I would get a CBC. I want to know his electrolytes. Ryan, you sound like you don't want any blood from this kid at all. Well, I'm not a vampire, Aaron. You know, I agree. I want to see an x-ray probably first. And then my other thing I would probably bring to the bedside would be an ultrasound. Um, I like things quick and fast in answering the questions. And on my differential, I think still high up would be a substance abuse. You know, we're seeing so many drugs that are laced with different things. You know, he thinks he's smoking marijuana, but maybe it's something else. Maybe, you know, he got marijuana and spice you know, I don't know. So in a kid that has normal breast sounds on both sides, I agree with Chris, you know, small pneumothorax is is still possible. But um, with the normal EKG, dysrhythmia kind of goes away. 
but you know, a sudden onset after using a drug, you know, there aren't many things that'll do that. That I think we've narrowed that pretty fast. Now you could say something else is going on entirely just true, true and unrelated, but um, I would want to get an x-ray first. And I, I think an EKG and chest x-ray and all low risk chest pain is reasonable to do and probably the starting point. Um, and I would do those before I did blood tests. I would maybe do some blood interventions and give something through that IV, maybe some fluids. If I'm worried he's anxious or on some drug, maybe I try a benzodiazepine for a little sympathomimetic uh, component given the tachycardia or given his tachycardia, given a little hypertension. So that would be kind of where I would start, but I would go from there. I don't feel I have to get blood work in this kid immediately. No, I'm with Brian on this one. I'm going to get an EKG. I'm going to get a chest X-ray. Um, based on, uh, you have to trust his history. He's he's giving you a, a, a non-ambiguous acute onset um, story, and, and I just I, anemia doesn't present that way. You know, slow developing like kidney disease with electrolyte abnormalities doesn't de- doesn't develop that way. He's he's giving us a um, an acute onset. So I just want to see what his lungs look like, and I also I thought you know, give the point to Brian. He brought up ultrasound. This is one of the few instances where I think having ultrasound um, at the bedside is actually really something I, I would I would really, really want. And just have a quick look at the lung windows. I think I have a better negative predictive value with a normal um, bedside ultrasound than I would even feel with the chest x-ray. I hear where you guys are coming from, but I think... Um a patient that looks like this, that's, you know, an otherwise young, healthy kid that's sitting up diaphoretic, super tachypnic and looks in distress. I think for me, he's out of the low risk category at this point, And it's somebody that I want to get more information about. And so I guess that's sort of where, what my mindset was. So everybody just alluded in the differential diagnosis we were talking about. And what are your predictions? Everybody alluded, nobody said the big bad words of aortic dissection. None of you want to type in screen on this guy? Why? Not, not yet. Not yet. All right. If they don't even want a CBC or a BMP, CBC. how are they going to get a type and screen? I think if his x-ray and his ultrasound are normal, he is not responding to just IV and maybe some fluids. His symptoms are persisting. This is something where I would be willing to, like in round two of workup, basically say, okay, I'm going to expand my workup. And All then right. I'll think outside the box. I'm agree. The only other test I order in low-risk chest pain in young kids is just you know, D-dimer, procalcitonin, in addition to my EKG. Um, I usually MRI the chest, too, because it could be an atrial myxoma, but all that's right, not a usual all right, thing. All right, You've been muted. talking you. <laughs> I do have the ability to mute, and you get your time back in 30 seconds. I'm also going to – you're also going to lose some points for making the team go back in and restick this guy when you have to transfuse him after his dissection leaks. All right. Get your information while you got it. We're going to run out of O negative blood because of you, Brian. All right, time to take a look at what this gentleman has. So you get your uh, chest x-ray and you see a right-sided 15% pneumothorax. Uh, Your POCUS that uh, Chris performs at the bedside shows absent lung sliding on the right with a lung point sign. Uh, Meanwhile, you're waiting for uh, some of your other blood work to come back. Your CBC shows a white count of 15, H and H of 14 and 48, and uh, platelets of 185 with a normal differential. Your BMP is completely flawless. Uh, Points to everybody all around for not ordering a troponin on this gentleman, for not ordering a D-dimer. 
Okay, so now we have a diagnosis for this gentleman. Are you going to do any kind of surgical intervention on this gentleman? Intervene, yes, surgical intervention. I, I, I think that's a big, it depends. Um, I think the first thing I would do is I'd put him on 100% non-rebreather, trying to deoxygenate that portion. And then, you know, this is what Chris, I think, was alluding to earlier. This is where the social history, I think, comes in. Who do you live with? What is your, um, you know, I know people don't want to talk about it, but we should be talking about what their insurance is because a lot of, not a lot of patients can afford some of the interventions and hospitalizations. You know, do you live here in town? Maybe they're visiting. You know, I've had a lot of people traveling through recently. Um, so that's going to change what I do. Uh, and then, you know, is, you know, he's 19, so he's making his own decisions. I would uh, lay out the options and do kind of a shared decision making. I don't think this is cut and dry. This isn't a tension pneumothorax. This isn't a total collapse of the lung. Um, 15% uh, is something, but it's not a big uh, pneumothorax. And so you have to take his symptoms in component. Uh, so I think you're going to have to do something, but I would talk with the patient to come up with my decision. Same as Brian, I'm, I'm going to just explain the, um, you know, what, what's going on and some part, you know, a, a small collapse of uh, one side of the lungs and that the uh, significant portion of these resolve without any intervention at all. Um, and uh, it, in both the American and British thoracic chest organizations have recommended if you're under 20% to um, that actually observation is probably appropriate. Um, one, uh, one society recommended to observe for six hours and then repeat a chest x-ray. Um, I can't say I've always done that, um, especially if they have good follow-up and um, I, I'm pretty confident that they can get a chest x-ray the next day with the either outpatient um, or with surgery clinic follow-up. But it, unless I was really, really confident that this person's reliable and they've got good follow-up, I probably would observe them in the ED and get a repeat chest x-ray. Um, that gives them time to kind of process things and decide if things aren't really improving or if they if, say it's gone from 15 to 20 percent, you know, then we talk about an intervention like a um, simple aspiration versus a chest tube at, at that point. But my, um, I would be kind of steering the patient away from a surgical intervention on my first go. I would say, you know, we could probably just observe this in the ED. I think I would try um, a non-rebreather and, and see what happens, um, see if the patient improves. If he remains hypoxic and tachypnic um, or still symptomatic, then yes, I think you need to then explore more aggressive options. I mean, the literature shows that um, simple spontaneous pneumothoraxes, they, thoraces, they uh, resorb 1.25 to 2.2% every 24 hours, right? And oxygen theoretically can increase that by three or four times. And so I think um, it's worth a try in a small pneumothorax and an otherwise healthy person to see if it's going to improve before you do something that has adverse um, effects associated with it. Um, but if he's still not improving, then yeah, you need to do something more hands-on. Excellent use of the leg. He is very symptomatic. And so this is all assuming that he's improving with our interventions. If Even if the pneumothorax is not expanding, but he stays looking the way he does when he shows up, I, I don't know how you, know, you send him home like that. So we start with everyone's conservative approach. We put him on a non-rebreather and he's still there, 
with about an hour left to go in your shift. He's been on the non-rebreather for four hours. You get a repeat chest x-ray, and now it's a 30% pneumothorax. What are you doing for him, Brian? What's going to be your intervention? Are you going to try to aspirate this guy first? Are you going to put in a pigtail? Are you going to do a surgical chest tube? I think that the wrong answer there would be a surgical chest tube. I, I think we have moved away from that. Uh, you know, when I trained it, everyone got a surgical chest tube. There was no pigtail. So, uh, but now I, I think we have good data and literature on pigtails and their uses in spontaneous pneumothorax. Nor do I think this patient's a VATS candidate. He's a first time pneumothorax. So I'm not going to call the CT surgeon and take him to the operating room. I think those are two big and probably cause more harm than benefit. So to me, the choices would be an aspiration and going home or a pigtail and stain. Um, I think those are kind of the options that I would be laying out for him. And I would explain the benefits and the harms of each of those and see what he had a choice in. Um, either way, you're trying to decrease, you know, the, this is pneumothorax that is expanding. And so you're going to have to intervene on it. You can't just uh, keep him on the oxygen. I think that would be the wrong answer. And just admitting him on oxygen would not be a good answer. You know, it's the end of my shift. So being honest, exactly. I have one hour left. Exactly. So I'm going to get that busy not arbitrary. real fast. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm he's getting a pigtail and he's getting admitted. <laughs> Chris, you get the points for honesty there. So he's getting a pigtail and he's getting admitted. Uh, for what reasons? And the honest answer and then the best for the patient answer, which I think are the same. They're the same. He, he's he's show, not showing clinical improvement and he's showing an expanse, expanding uh, pneumothorax despite our, our interventions. Um, this is not a, let's aspirate you. What are you going to do? Aspirate him and then send him home? You're going to aspirate and observe him. He's already been in the ER for four and a half hours going on five. Um, that's an easy sell. What would have made you just admit this guy right from the get-go? I think some of the information that he didn't have um, that wasn't part of the case originally. So if he had a history, past medical history of previous pneumothoraces or cystic fibrosis or, you know, some underlying pulmonary disease, that's, um, that's a shoe-in, I think, right away. That's not somebody we're just going to put oxygen on and watch him in the ER for several hours. So, Allie, walk me through this uh, consent that you're going to give this kid. Listen, this air pocket that's in your lungs, despite the oxygen that we've been giving you, has gotten bigger and you're not getting any better. And so this means that we need to actually do something to drain that air out. Um, and the best thing to do is to put a thin catheter in between your ribs, into that space between your lungs and your ribs, and it's going to pull out that air that's not supposed to be there and allow your lungs to expand and have you breathe a little bit better. It's going to be uncomfortable. We'll give you some medicine to numb the area um, and, you know, try to make you as comfortable as possible. But um, that's what we'd like to do. The risks of this are that, you know, anytime you break the skin, there's a risk of introducing infection. There's a risk of bleeding with the blood vessels in the area. But we, um, we know the technique to do to try to minimize these risks. Excellent. Great. Lots of points for risks and benefits, points for not using jargon, except for the term catheter, which makes me think you're going to put something also in my urethra. Um, Brian, walk me through how you're going to do this procedure. Uh, well, hopefully we can still do it in the ER and trauma hasn't gotten called. So, oh. uh, I mean, it's reality. It's reality. So, you know, to me, this is the same approach as you would with a normal chest x-ray. You're just using a Seldinger uh, kit. So you're going to prep and drape 
the patient in a sterile manner, you have your consent obtained. I also uh, get these patients high. I don't think you need procedural sedation like an open chest tube, but they're going to get a couple doses of fentanyl, and I want them thinking about daisies and not the uh, tube that I'm sticking in. You'll have to enter the uh, space. You're going to want to do good anesthesia, both locally, at the skin, deep muscle, and then I try to even get down into the pleura because probably the most sensitive place uh, for you putting a needle or something in someone's chest is their pleura. So I dump a lot of that. And if you go through into the uh, intrathoracic space, that is okay. That's where you're going anyway. So don't feel bad if you're aspirating air before you're injecting that anesthetic. Just back up a little bit and then load up the anesthetic in there. Um, when I place the, uh, there's the whole talk of, oh, it's, you go over the rib and not under the rib and there's neurovascular bundles and all this nonsense. Well, over the rib is always under a different rib. So I think that's, you know, silly and nonsensical. Go not through a rib, go in between the ribs and you will be A and O and K. Um, once I get the uh, needle in place, I'm aspirating air. I'm going to put the wire through. I'll pull out the needle. I'll nick the skin. I'm going to advance my catheter in a dilate, the dilating catheter through, making a nice good hole that I can then put my uh, catheter, pigtail catheter in. And you want to make sure you push it down and back and up. And, and the hard part with pigtails is that it's different than uh, regular, you know, chest tubes. When you put a regular chest tube, you could, you, you know, you make your incision, you put your finger into the chest cavity and you feel inside, you place the tube in and then you can re-put your finger back in and totally confirm. So I think you just need to be cognizant of when you're doing this to make sure your catheter is truly in the uh, in the chest cavity. Don't go too shallow. Hopefully, if you've already done an ultrasound, you should have an approximation of the depth of where you're going to get to that pleural cavity. So that'll help guide you. You know, if it's two centimeters or maybe in that big person, it is 10 centimeters and you're, you know, you're really getting the harpoon out for them. Once the catheter is in, um, you're going to want to secure it in place. And I secure it in place um, the same way I would do a normal chest tube. So I do a lot of sutures, uh, both to the skin, hopefully have some lidocaine left over, numb that up, suture uh, the catheter in place. Um, I still use Vaseline gauze and will wrap that around the tube in the skin uh, to create a seal and then put gauze and lots of uh, two to three inch foam spongy tape. Um, this is going to be a tender area, so I'm trying to, one, pat it, two, I'm trying to hold that catheter in because all catheters want to come out. So the more that you can do to secure that catheter will help not having the patient go through that procedure again. Points off to Brian for not making any jokes about just putting the tip in or putting your finger in the hole. I actually have to take points off for that. Chris is absolutely correct. I'm sorry. That is a great point. I didn't even think about that. Chest tube is in place. Uh, you get a repeat x-ray. And uh, now just with a water seal, you've gotten uh, near complete resolution of this pneumothorax. Um, probably a little bit faster than what would happen in real life. But for the purpose of this case, it's going to happen. Um, you have the opportunity to maybe send this patient home with a Heimlich valve and not keep them in the hospital. Is anyone considering that for this patient? How does he feel um, after the procedure and how are his vital signs after the procedure? 
Doc, I feel so much better. I feel like I could go hit the bong again. Um, his vital signs now, temperature is 37.0, heart rate is 105, blood pressure is 128 over 75. Uh, he is breathing at 18 times a minute, and he's satting 98% on room air. And has Brian's fentanyl worn off? Uh, yes, yes. Brian's yeah. fentanyl. The Haldol and the Benadryl. And the Haldol. And the, <laughs> <laughs> the Droperidol. I've cured him of his bong needs. Thanks to Brian, he's not hitting the bong. Points off because now he's coming to the ER for Brian's cocktail every six. <laughs> Obviously, counsel him, no, yeah, man, no more smoking, uh, no more bong hits, uh, especially while you're healing a pneumothorax. And I'm, I'm also going to ask the stuff we may have already brought up before, which is what are his resources does he have for follow-up? And if those are all in place and he has some sort of outpatient follow-up plan, I think this is somebody I would allow to go home. I'm skeptical of a 19-year-old college kid. Um, I would have a very long discussion with him and really just try to judge his character and see if he's going to be a reasonable person to send home. I think, I mean, he's a great candidate for this. He's healthy. He's got no medical problems. Certainly during COVID era, the hospital is no place to be if you don't need to be there. So um, I think it's worth a try if you think that he's going to be appropriate. Brian, you want to round us out? Are you sending or are you keeping? I, again, I do shared decision-making with the patient. You know, he wants to go. We can make it happen. He wants to stay. Uh, we can keep them. I, I, I think Heimlich valves are, we used in the Navy, we used um, Heimlich valves. And I actually had a whole AMOL for Heimlich valves for mass casualties because that was your treatment of choice. It was really put the tube in, put a Heimlich valve on, that's going to buy you time. We don't have enough suction and catheter sets up, setups uh, to continue it. You're skeptical because he's young, but at the same time, you know, he's an adult, he can make these decisions. Um, you know, he can attach his bong there if whatever he wants to do. So I think, uh, all these are possible. Um, it's really, this is a patient, this is a dealer choice patient makes the decision. And, um, I think you can support it either way and support their care either way with this. And as we come to the end of the workup, Dr. Ali Min leads the way with 22 points and Dr. Drummond right on her heels with 20. We thank Dr. Chris Williams for all of his wit and wisdom and for poking the bear with Brian when we needed him to. Thanks, Chris, and we'll see you next time. But now we're going to move on to the Dispo. During the Dispo, points are awarded for a concise and convincing admission call or a clear layperson-level discussion of the discharge instructions. Admission calls should be top-down with the most important information first, riding the fine line between overselling and underselling the admission. Discharge instructions should include shared decision-making, follow-up instructions, and explicit return precautions. And, of course, evidence-based medicine is always welcome. We're going to recap this case real quick. This is a 19-year-old male with 30 minutes of right-sided chest pain who was watching TV he had uh, vital signs significant for tachycardia with a heart rate of 128, tachypnea with a respiratory rate of 32, satting 95% on room air. Uh, he was found to have a 15% right-sided pneumothorax. And then after uh, monitoring in the ED on a non-rebreather, it expanded to 30%. We placed a pigtail on this patient. And the choices are to either send the patient home with a Heimlich valve 
or to admit the patient with a pneumothorax attached to uh, one of the Pluravax. All right, Brian. So you elected to do shared decision-making with this gentleman, and he decided uh, that he doesn't really want to stay in the hospital because of COVID. Uh, so go in there, lay on the discharge instructions, and I will be your patient. All right. Hey, Bobby, are you feeling better now with this chest tube in place? You look oh, a lot more comfortable, and you feel comfortable going home? Uh, I, I, I mean, I... I think so. I, I don't want to stay in the hospital, but I don't, what do I do with this thing? It kind of hurts when I breathe a little bit. And I mean, it's just it's weird to have this yeah. thing sticking out of my chest. Well, you're right. It is weird. Um, and so going home is, I think you're doing a reasonable option here uh, to go home. That tube is going to have to stay there for a little bit. So I don't really want you pulling on it, messing on it, putting anything in it. You're just going to basically take care of it. Um, and how we're going to take care of it, there's a bandage on there already. You're going to leave that on for the next day or two. Um, I want you to just do spit baths for the next two days. So a spit bath is basically you in the shower with a washcloth, but the water's not running. Get the washcloth wet, you know, scrub yourself down, keep it clean. But I don't want you taking off the bandages and possibly uh, dislodging it. Now, Bobby, do you have a primary doctor here in town? Uh, no, I'm from Pittsburgh. I don't, I don't have a doc out here. That's okay, Bobby. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to set you up with a follow-up for the general surgery clinic, uh, later this week, probably in the next five to seven days, but I'm working in two days and I want you to come back and see me in two days. Uh, we're just going to look at it. We're going to probably shoot another x-ray and make sure you are doing okay. Since you don't have someone to follow you up right away. I know, um, that you were using a bong earlier today. Another thing that would probably help is not doing any drugs or anything that you would consider high-risk maneuvers. Things like jumping out of airplanes, going in airplanes, um, no swimming. You have an open wound, so you don't want to do anything like that. Um, probably going to parties and getting drunk, not a good idea right now. Just take it easy for the next couple days. Um, you know, Watching TV, reading a book, texting your friends, totally fine. Um, because you have that catheter in there, there's probably going to be some pain associated with it. Would you want some medicines to go home to help you with pain? Yeah. I mean, if it's going to hurt when this stuff wears off, like I definitely want to have something. I don't really want to feel any pain with this when I go home. Good. And you have no allergies from what I remember, correct? No, no allergies. So I'm not going to feel right. any pain from this when I go home? You're going to still have some pain. Our goal is to reduce that pain to a, a point where you feel comfortable and are able to do your daily activities, such as cleaning for yourself, feeding yourself, and able to sleep at night. So I'm going to give you some Motrin and Tylenol. You've probably taken those before, um, but I want you to take those around the clock for the next five days, and I'll give you a prescription so you know the doses. You can fill those at your pharmacy or ask your pharmacist uh, to get them over the counter and point you in that direction. Um, also, if you'd like to give you uh, an opiate to go home with, have you ever had morphine before? Uh, no. Okay, it's similar to the fentanyl. Um, you may not need it all the time, but I would definitely take a dose before you go to bed the first uh, couple days of this. Uh, that'll probably be when it hurts the most. I'd also wear a shirt when you're going to bed and so that you're not pulling on that catheter or it's getting caught on anything. Um, in terms of what's going to happen next, this should slowly continue to heal and resolve over the next few days, and eventually that catheter will get pulled out. 
But if you get worsening symptoms, worsening pain, shortness of breath, there's blood from the site, you're starting to get a fever, pus around the wound, redness around the wound, anything that you were concerned about, and you're before you see me in two days or before you see the general surgeon, I want you to come back. Is that doable? Do you think you can come back to the ER? Yeah, if you think it's safe, I'd much rather do this than have to stay in the hospital. Absolutely. Your bed's probably a whole lot more comfortable than ours. So um, let's do that. So we have stuff for you for pain. We have a good follow-up. I'll see you in a couple days. You know things to come back for. And if anything's concerning or questions, you come on back, see us again. That's not a problem. We're happy to take care of you. Any questions that you have, Bobby? No, I'm good. Thanks, Doc. All right. Well, you have a good day. Very well done. You hit all the important stuff, man. You got return precautions. You got asking the patient for questions and follow-up. If they, You established follow-up for them. You told them uh, to come back and see you to make sure everything was all right. That's the important things. You address the pain. You address what to do when it comes out. And most importantly, very, very specific with the return precautions, which I think matters tremendously. Excellent job. Ali, you have discussed with the patient and he has decided instead that he would like to stay. So you are going to be making the call and the hospitalist, med captain, is now on the phone with you. Hello, this is Dr. Medicine Captain. Hi, Dr. Medicine Captain. Thanks for calling back. I have a gentleman that uh, I'd like to admit to you, your service. He's a 19-year-old male with no past medical history who's presenting with a first-time spontaneous pneumothorax. Uh, he came in by EMS. He was sitting at rest, had sudden onset of chest pain. Um, he was breathing at a rate of 32, hypoxic when he arrived. He said he was uh, smoking marijuana from a bong when the pain came on. Um, so initially after workup, we saw his chest x-ray showed a 15% pneumothorax on the right side. Um, initially, we were trying just conservative management with some oxygen therapy, but after several hours observation, his chest repeat chest x-ray showed a doubling in size and up to 30% pneumothorax on the right. So um, still pretty symptomatic. We decided to put in a uh, right-sided pigtail catheter without any complications. Repeat x-ray shows good expansion of the lung. Um, he doesn't have a great social situation. I'm concerned about his ability to follow up. Um, so I think then um, he'd prefer to be in the hospital as well. Do you think he needs a chest CT before he comes up to me? I mean, just to make sure there's not something more insidious going on? I don't think so. His chest x-ray looked uncomplicated otherwise. He has no risk factors for PE, aortic dissection, or anything like that. And his symptoms have significantly improved after the pigtail placement. Um, so I think, I think a chest CT is not necessary currently. Okay. Uh, well, I'm not really all that familiar with managing these uh, chest tubes. Would you be able to call the cardiothoracic surgeons or the general surgeons or someone to help me manage this thing? I can give them a call and tell them that the patient's going to be admitted and they can see them when uh, see him when he gets up to, to the floor. Okay. Well, I guess that sounds reasonable. We'll be happy to take him. Very nicely done. What I think you did that was uh, very important there is even though you compromised, it was a conditional compromise. Yes, they will be happy to see them once they are admitted to your service because you are going to admit them, correct? 
because that admission will help keep the machinery of the emergency department running. So excellent job. Judging between you two is very, very difficult. However, I have to admit, Brian wowed me with his ability to talk a 19-year-old uh, into going home with a Heimlich valve. Brian, you are the first winner. And we, we welcome you to the art of emergency medicine to take your time on your soapbox to speak about whatever is on your mind. And I do this with great trepidation. Well, you opened the door, so I appreciate this opportunity to uh, uh, rant. I, I think the, what I'm feeling right now in today's world with COVID and everything going on is that we're trying to fill a vacuum of knowledge with half-assery and random things. And we're not going back to just thinking rationally, right? We have to take a deep step back, not look at journals before they've been pre-printed, that haven't been peer-reviewed to come up with decision-making and treatment arms for things. This tells us a lot about, I think, what we need to do day-to-day -day in medicine, right? We should be taking information that we gather from articles and our practice patterns and our ability um, from what we know and don't know to come up with a reasonable practice and not just jump into one thing and jump into another thing and randomly change. Between the number of face shields and eyeglasses and donning and doffing that no one seems to really know what they're doing, but we seem to be doing a really good job because not a lot of us are getting sick on a regular basis, maybe we just need to apply this to other things in our practice and be more rational and appropriate. We're rational with the patient with chest pain when they come in. We talk to them, we get a history, we kind of go through our differential. We think of all the bad stuff, but sometimes we can rule out those bad stuff without a test. Tests are really there for if we don't understand something or have a question we can't answer. And it's okay to be reasonable and be thoughtful in medicine, and at the same time, we should all be skeptical. But I hope we're all being safe with everything going on out there. So that was kind of a long, a uh, lot of things are going through my mind right now with medicine. But uh, let's just all take a deep breath. Uh, keep doing what we're doing. I think we're doing a really good job of what we're doing. Um, we're not tremendous, but uh, I think we are pretty good at what we do. So just be safe. Keep doing what you're doing. Uh, we'll get through this. That was fantastic. Well, thank you all very much for uh, uh, helping engage with this new format. We hope that it's a little bit more entertaining. It's a little bit more useful. It's something that you can all benefit from. And thanks to our panelists. We'll see you next month.